Good morning, and how are y'all doing today? It's great to see you. Take your Bibles, if you have them with you, your devices, and turn to John chapter 3 and verse 22. We continue this morning in our series through the book of John. Uh, Reba and I were away with our family last week. We'll talk about that in a moment. But yet, uh, Nathan was here, our children's pastor, and he taught from the first part of John chapter 3. And he did an amazing job. He is just such an amazing young man who we love greatly and so absolutely privileged and blessed to have him here at Hope Fellowship to minister to our families. And so we want to finish up chapter 3 together this morning. And so here is the thought as we begin loving Christ more than, and I kind of left that open for us to work out the answer to that or to fill in the blank after that as we go through our study this morning. And, and so, you know, you say, but Mark, why would you start with a title like that? Why would you start with simply saying, loving Christ more than, and, and loving Christ more than what? And so I would fill in starting by saying simply everything else, everything else. And so here's why we start with this phrase, loving Christ more than, because we are driven by whatever we love. I mean, that's the truth of our humanity, is that you and I are driven by whatever we love. We make sacrifices in our lives, and we, we make adjustments to our lives by and in place of and for the things that we love in life. This past Sunday, as I said, we were not here, that um, I had the privilege of preaching at the Summerall Chapel on the campus of the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, where our son Grayson is a cadet there. And, and it was a, such a great privilege for us to say, well, Mark, but, but why did you do that? Well, one, that's what I'm called to do. I love to do that. I love to preach and I love to teach. So that's, that's one reason why I did that. The other reason, I was invited, but yet, I, you know, it just didn't show up. But I did that. But also, it's because that, well, I just have to say that I love Grayson a whole lot. You know, I kind of like the kid. And so I, I did that because I, I love him and because my family was there. So last Sunday morning, man, I, I robed up. I put my robe on. I had my stole on with the, with the dove on the sides and, 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 and the Trinity and all that kind of stuff. And I, I wore my papal hat. And I, no, I didn't wear the hat, okay? I didn't wear, I, I thought about the hat, but I thought the hat might be a little overboard. So I didn't wear the hat, right? And, and I stepped up in, in the pulpit that sort of, um, it, it's, it's like the control center of, of the enterprise. You know, you step up and it kind of surrounds you like that. And, and you kind of look over everybody. And, and, and I was really greatly out of my element for sure. And, and the greatest work of God last Sunday morning is that I actually preached 20 minutes. Isn't that a, That is a work of Christ. That is really a work of Christ. It really is. Yes. Somebody clapped. Uh, that's funny, right? <laughs> so I did that because uh, because I love the Lord and I and I love what I do. But I also did that because I love the ten members of my family who were standing there, uh, glaring at me through that, and all of them looking at their watches, thinking there is no way that he is going to stay on schedule in the liturgy of this morning. It's just not going to happen. But with the help of God, I did. And, and so one of my family's members afterwards, I said, hey, can you believe it? I preached 20 minutes. And, and Marcy said, actually, you preached 22 minutes. So I said, well, thank you, Marcy, for, for humbling me and bringing me back down to where I need to be. But I do that because I love them. Here's my thought in saying that and sharing that with this morning. That I take this a step further in our lives. That to even our understanding of right and wrong in our lives is not what motivates our actions. Many times it's not. It's, it's what we love that motivates the actions of our lives. Yeah. That this afternoon after we have this service or at some point you're going to probably go to lunch or brunch or whatever. And when you sit down at the table, you're going to open the menu and, and you know what 
you know, you know what foods are good for you and what are, what are not. And, but that doesn't stop you. Why? Because you love food and you love things. And so you look at the menu and you first always start at the salads because you want to think healthy, right? So you look at the, the superfood kind of salad, that of tofu and feta. And then on the other side of the menu on the corresponding page is that of the double bacon cheeseburger with chili cheese fries, you know, on the side, right? So you have this moment where you're praying and you're asking God over the menu, Lord, just be with me in this time of temptation, Lord, because we know that man shall not live by cheeseburger alone. And, and so you're, you're praying through all of this and what do you choose? Well, you choose the burger, of course, because that's what you love. Exactly, because you know that God created beef to make the burger, and who knows who created tofu? Isn't that right? Yes. So, so you choose God's creation to eat. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's love that motivates the direction of our lives. Well, you understand that, because we all live that way. It's not always the knowledge in your child's life of right and wrong that motivates their actions, but yet it's what they love that drives them. Absolutely, yes. Now, can I tell you in light of this, that God does not want us to be in love with a list. I think that's important that we start out by saying that and kind of get that out of there. That God doesn't want us to be in love with a list. God wants us to be in love with Him. God wants us to be in love with Him. And that's important because that's a game changer. But what we understand about our humanity is this, that we're primarily, we're not primarily thinkers, we're primarily lovers. We are. And so this narrative, as we share, starting in John chapter 3 and verse 22, that this narrative is not about a list, it's not about rules, but it's so much about tools for you and I in our lives and placing Christ in the, situ- in the place that he should be within our hearts and our own lives. It's about love, it's about relationship. In fact, John, in writing this, that, that he, he talks about John the Baptist in a moment, and he uses an analogy of a bride, a bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom of that probably would be like what we would think to be the best man. So it's truly about love, and it's truly about relationship. This is not one of those sermons as we talk about the supremacy of Christ within our lives. I'm not going to say to you, and I don't believe that Christ teaches us, that we have to exclude everything else in our lives in order to that to love Christ. But it's, it's about the supremacy of God in our life. It's about that position that he holds in my life, in your life, in my heart, and in my mind. And when he has that seat in my life, then I do unlove some things. Yes, absolutely. I do rearrange some things within my life, and it's because of his love within my life, not because of some begrudging duty, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But what this simply reminds us about is this, that he loves us, and he loved us when we were unlovable. So it's not about God loving us more when we kind of get all of our priorities right, and he is supreme in our heart and our lives, because that's not possible. Because we will never be loved any more by God than what we're loved and how we're loved right now by Him. Understand that. So it's about loving Christ more than. So here's three big ideas that we're going to find through our teaching before we go to the Lord's table this morning. The first is this, and I thought about this week, the most extreme competitive events of our existence happen in our hearts and our minds. The most extreme competitive events 
the events of our existence happen in our hearts. It doesn't happen on the field of competition, but it happens here and it happens here many times unbeknownst to everyone around us. The second thing is this, that complete joy in our life, not that of happiness, because you think, oh man, you have my attention now, because I come here to find some happiness. Listen, God wants you to be happy, but happiness is an emotion. It is. You could be happy when you drove up this morning, but when you walk in the lobby, and if we don't have what the flavor of donut that you, if we didn't have like a pumpkin donut, I don't even know if we had those this morning, but if we didn't, then you're unhappy because it's a fleeting emotion within your life. So complete joy in our life is an outcome of an understanding of the supremacy of Christ. And we're going to see where John teaches us that. And the third thing is this, it is the bridegroom, that is Christ, we know, who, pur- who purifies the bride, the church, you and I, and not human effort. And not human effort. So John chapter 3, we start in our narrative this morning in verse 22, and it says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Jordanian, Jordanian countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, it says, now, it's important to stop for here for a moment for a point, and that is that we have a bunch of Johns here. We have two of them anyway. And so who is, who is he talking about? For this is John the Baptist. And you thought, wait a minute, we left him back in chapter 1. Why is he back here in chapter 3 again? Because when we left him in chapter 1, he's the one that says that I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. He says that simply about Jesus, that you are the Son of God. He told his disciples, his followers, that behold, the Lamb of God, when he referred to Christ. So we find this is John the Baptist. For he says, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. And in verse 24 is in brackets, because it doesn't appear in the original translation uh, or manuscripts, but it's given to us for that of some historical context, for John had not yet been put in prison. So I think also verse 24 is this, that we tend to look at John the Baptist and we think, man, he never struggled like we did. He never had all these issues like we have. He's not really human, but he's very human. Because we're reminded of the moments in his prison before in Herod's prison that he does begin to question that of Christ. And is he the Messiah? Because why? Because Jesus doesn't come and spring him out of jail. So it's, it simply gives us something to cling on to. So here's the first thought as I begin to read all of this. It's just that the oldest of all struggles. It's the oldest of all struggles. Before we go any further, I have to tell you what John the writer is not saying. And it's not happening here. You have Jesus and you have John baptizing So this is not the baptism playoffs. Understand that, okay? This is not the competition that we might see it to be. It's not that at all. That John and Jesus are not the finalists for the Muddy Jordan Baptism Cup. That's not what's happening here at all. It's, it's, it's not, there's no jealousy on John's part because there's Jesus. And there's no insecurity on Jesus' part because there's followers of John. There's no struggle at all here between John and Jesus outside of John's imperfect state within his life. But there is conflict. Yes. Because it's the world in which a broken world in which we live. It's conflict as old as the book of Genesis, but yet as fresh as this morning in our lives as we sit here in this very room. That life itself, life itself 
is orchestrated against the supremacy of Christ in our lives. It is. Life itself is orchestrated against the supremacy of Christ with all of our lives. Whether it's things that are good or whether it's things that we might deem to be bad, but yet that is the absolute truth about the world we live in. And, and you say, but Mark, wait a minute. This is one of those sermons that, you know, that you're going to say, oh, you better get your priorities in line kind of sermon. So at the end, we're going to make a list. And then we're going to kind of move things around in our list. And then naturally, because we don't want to be shamed in any way, then we're going to kind of erase Jesus where he is in our life. And we're going to kind of move him up to the top. And we're going to write him in up at the top. And then everything is going to be fine. And that is not what this is about. Why? Because you've tried that. And how does it work? Let's just, I think, make this very level ground for all of us, as I say so many times this morning, that this this struggle of the supremacy of Christ in all of our lives is messy and inconsistent at its best for all of us. It really is. From the stage to the very back of the room, that it's messy and inconsistent for all of us in this. That's why I believe, and I love this, that John the writer gives us an insight in verse 24, reminding us about John the Baptist. It's, it's, it's perfect because what he's saying is John the Baptist doesn't even have all of this Jesus first stuff down right in his life either. That's why he refers to his imprisonment for you and I to connect with this morning. It's where he questions that of why Jesus doesn't come and break him out of prison. It's exactly that. It's not that Jesus could not come and take John the Baptist out of prison. No, it's that Jesus would not because there's a greater picture. There's something bigger going on. It's the perfect picture of our imperfect struggle within this life. So here's the conflict. Look at verse 25. It says this. And now a discussion arose among some, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And I have to explain this to you for a moment. And you have to understand the word Jew there is used very intentionally. Because it helps us to understand the discussion. Because this is about ceremonial purification as the Jew would see that. And so John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples and that of this Jew, they're having this discussion about ceremonial um, per, um I forgot the word. (laughs) I looked at it, but it just doesn't jump out. Um, Purification. And they, John's disciples and the Jew, they come to John the Baptist and they say to him, Rabbi, they call him teacher. They say to him, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, they say. They say, all right, take a moment, John, turn. I can just see them. They grab him, kind of turn him and they they, they turn him in, in in the way of direction of Jesus. And they say, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, there's the conflict. It's this. It's not between John and Jesus, but it's going on between the disciples of John the Baptist and that of this Jew. That John, you're baptizing. Jesus is baptizing. People are getting out of John's line, and they're going, and they're getting in Jesus's line for baptism. It's what's happening. And then as the Jews would understand purification, then what this Jew is beginning to think, well, maybe Jesus's purification works a little better than John's. That's why they're all getting out of line, because they want to be in the place where it works the best. So they have that mindset. There is this conflict, just like you and I have conflict. 
This conflict of who's greater, of what is superior, of what needs to be supreme in our life, of who is preeminent, who do I love more, that's exactly what this is. But it's not in the mind of John. Why? Because John, he's not made a list, he's not moved Jesus to the top, erased him from where he really was in his life, he's not moved around the categories of his life, that's not it at all. No, because what we're about to read shows that all of this where Jesus is in John's life comes from John's heart. Listen, Christ's supremacy in our life does not begin with a list. Understand that. It begins in our hearts. That's where it begins. Not a list, but a work of our heart. We know that because how John is about to respond to this conversation with his disciples and this Jew. So here it is in verse 27. It says this, And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now, don't allow your mind to go to where it goes by default sometimes in this text because he's not talking about that of God blessing you with these tangible and material things. It's not what he's talking about at all. He does bless us. I understand that. But he's not talking about God giving you a new car. And I know for some of you, that is highly disappointing in the room. It is. But in context, it's talking about a gift that is absolutely greater. And what John is talking about is the gift of the incarnate Christ. He's talking about the greatest gift given to all. So here is the second thought about this text this morning. It's this, that God has always had a heavenly solution for our human dilemma. There's always been a heavenly solution for our human dilemma. Yes, this is where Christ's supremacy begins in our lives. It's not, some, it's not some list, understand that, but it's the realization of God being sovereign. That's where the supremacy of Christ in our life begins. It's not a list that all of life is lived through the hands of God, that he has always had this divine plan for you and I. Understand that. Thus the words given him from heaven. It starts with surrendering to God's sovereignty through his son Jesus. It's why we said that the most competitive moments of our life start in our head and our mind. Because putting Christ first, loving him more than everything else in this world, doesn't begin with you simply making a list and erasing Jesus where he really is in your life and moving him to the top. It begins in your heart. It begins here. That's why, oh, that's why we struggle with this topic so much. Yes. And I know some of you, some of you are great list people and I love that. Can I tell you why I love list people? Because I live with one. I do. Yes, I do. And, and it's wonderful because I'm not necessarily the list person. She is. So we complete each other. And that is a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Some of you already got your mindset of you're going to go get you some of those big, giant, yellow post-it notes, right? And you're going to put them on a wall in your house. And you're going to put all these events in your life. And you're going to put where Christ is. And then you're going to make this big mark across this area in your life. And you're going to move Christ to the top. And that's going to make it happen. And can I tell you, that is as frustrating as you'll ever become in life because you can't make that happen. It's a work of God within your heart. It's a realization of his sovereignty that God has always had a plan 
to fix our human dilemma. It's when you come to that realization of who He is and that you can do nothing outside or apart from Him. That's where that begins in your life to making Christ supreme. That's where it starts. Because for me to just make some adjustments on the list, man, it's my meager attempt of, of, of behavioral adjustment. It is. And man, I, I can't adjust my behavior. I can do temporary adjustments in my behavior, but that doesn't always change my heart or the way I think. No, this is a realization that God is absolutely sovereign and that He has implemented His sovereign plan for my life through his son Jesus. If you read verse 27 again later on today, what you're going to find as you really sit in it for a moment is perhaps one of the most powerful scriptures you're going to find about God's sovereignty in the entire Bible. It is powerful. That God is sovereign, so all of life is a gift. All gifts are of grace. So why do we not love him more than everything else? In light of that, that's a huge question for us to ask ourselves, is why do we not love him more than everything else in life? Yes. Because we, I think we can sit here and we can say that we do, but when we really look at our lives and the totality of what it is, then we have to answer that question very honestly. So, so how, Mark, how do I make that move? Give me something practical. Listen, I'm a linear thinker, so I like steps. I really like steps and things. I do. So I, I begin to think, Lord, how does this work? Because I can give you this kind of ethereal idea uh, of that of, oh, this is a heart change. And, and so I'm just going to kind of, you know, float out there somewhere in the clouds and God's going to miraculously make this happen in my life. And then I'm going to go home and God's going to be first. And, and I want something that I can kind of wrap my hands around. So I begin to write and think this week. And I thought, oh, so here is the way that I see it as Mark, very linear in thinking. The first step toward that of loving God more than everything else in this life is this, that I realize my limitations. It starts with me. If you look at John the Baptist, we're going to realize the reason he's brought back to our attention is because he's always first when saying, I'm not the Christ. And then he says, but you are the Son of God. You are the Lamb of God. He always starts with making a statement of who he is. So I recognize my limitations and Christ as being the source of the fullness of life, that he's sovereign and I'm not. He is sovereign and I'm not. And there's great peace in my life just saying that this morning. So when I come to this realization of who I am, and I come to this realization of him being sovereign, and, and all life is lived through his hands, then I have to take the next step, step two. But it's a tough step for me. It's a tough step for a lot of us in this room because in light of my limitations, in light of his, his exceeding greatness, I have to respond to this gift of God in my life and his plan with trust. I have to trust him. I have to trust him. In light of my limitations, in light of his greatness, that I take that next step and I trust him. And that's where I struggle a lot of times is simply trusting. Yes. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but man, I tend to be suspicious. Okay? So, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one in the room. How many in the room 
in here are just kind of naturally suspicious about things? Put your hand up and let me say, oh, that's good. Terrific. Okay, great. We we have a mixed room. I I am suspicious of things. Absolutely. You know, so when people tell me things, I always go, hmm. I don't say that, but inside I'm going, hmm, you know, kind of thing. Like, I'm going to think on that for a while because that's just naturally, that's kind of who I am. That plays sometimes in my favor, but a lot of times that plays against me in life. It really does. So I struggle with the trust thing. In light of my limitation, in light of who he is, I trust him. Here's the third point, and here's how this all works, I believe. It's then, it's then with love and not some begrudging duty that I surrender those places of my life. You see, I think what we've done in life is we've tried to go to step three. I'm going to somehow surrender these places in my life and we struggle we make these momentary surrenders with god and then we pick these things back up in our lives or we never really lay them down to begin with with christ why because we skipped steps one and two we fail to recognize our limitations we fail to recognize that he has no limitations that he's sovereign over all things and in light of that we fail to trust him in light of who he is because if you don't go steps one and two when you get to step three that it is going to be some begrudging duty of yours to say, okay, you're God, and at some point if I don't surrender this to you, that you're going to fry me because you are deity and I'm human, and so I'm going to begrudgingly lay these things, but when I realize who he is and who I am, and I begin to trust him, I lay those things down in my life, and I place him in those spaces that he needs to be in my life out of a love relationship because I trust him. Does that make sense? I want that to make sense to you this morning. Because this is something that, that I struggled with for years before I realized this. These steps that I go through in order to simply surrender these spaces to, to God within my life. And then, and then after that, what I realized is the very act of the power that I have of surrendering those things in my life. That very power to do that is a gift of God within itself. So it's all grace. It's not me. It's all grace. Look at verse 28. We go on. That you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. See, here, here, here's John the Baptist. Here he is again. He always starts with simply uh, realizing who he is. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Again, acknowledging Christ. We understand why he's here. He always starts with his humanity and then God's eternal greatness. And if you don't go there, let me tell you something. If you don't go there, if it doesn't start with your limitations and God's eternal greatness, if, it, if you don't start there in your life, then I believe what you do is you create some very fertile soil within your life for pride. And then pride becomes the source of sin within your life. Because you think this is you doing this. You think that it's you that can straighten yourself out. And you think it's you that can fix you, that you can make these things happen within your life. If you miss this of your own humanity and God's greatness, where this starts, then what I realize is that you have not left the starting block for this journey with God. You have not, regardless of how long you've attended church, regardless of how how connected you are here, regardless of how big of a Bible that you carry every Sunday morning, and regardless of all the Bible studies that you may attend, if you have not started with the realization of your limitations and God's absolute greatness, then you have not even left the starting block in your journey. 
That's where it begins. And then he goes on to say, and he gives us this analogy. It is absolutely beautiful. In verse 29, he says this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must, and this is verse 30 is, wow, a powerful verse. So short, but so powerful. He must increase, but I must decrease. John sees God's plan working through Christ. And to the human eye, oh, to the human eye, this looks like this is all being played out at John's own expense. It really does. Because if we look at this from the human eye as John the Baptist, oh, we would, in our, if we were John the Baptist, we might say, hey, listen, I'm the one that's been crying out in the wilderness. I'm the one that's been living in caves. I'm the one that's been eating locusts and wild honey. I'm the one that's been wearing animal skin. I'm the one that runs around looking like a biblical Fred Flintstone. Is what I look like, right? Yes, absolutely. But you never find him saying those things. Why? Because it's this. He starts out with his own humanity. He understands God's absolute unlimited sovereignty over all things. And so he never has that. He doesn't have that thought. Listen, and life doesn't get a whole lot better for John the Baptist because sometime in the future, he's going to find himself in prison. He's going to find his neck meeting that of the sword of Herod after a stint in prison. But this is, John doesn't see it at his own expense. He's thrilled. He's thrilled that he is not the bridegroom, but he is a friend of the bride. And he doesn't get the bride. You say, why? Well, I, well, you might think, well, John knows his place. No, that's not it. John lovingly and fearfully knows Jesus' place. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. And because of that, he lovingly surrenders those spaces of his life to Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom, John is not. Because that relationship, that relationship starts out in chapter 1 with John embracing his humanity, embracing Jesus' sovereignty in life. Yes. And, and then what John does is this. He, he refers to hearing the bridegroom's voice. And he rejoices greatly, it says. Yes. It's not that he just it's not that he just recognizes the sound or the pitch. It's not that at all. No. It's an interesting thing about my boys and I, and Reba can attest to this, is that that we we all sound somewhat alike. We do. And so there's times that Reba might be upstairs in our house and she has her cell phone and she has one of our boys on speakerphone and I'm listening downstairs and I have to listen to some key words that they might say until I realize which one it is. Yes, because we sound alike. Yes. When, when I was a pastor in North Carolina, Chad, Chad answered the phone one day, my oldest, and on the other end of the phone was a woman who was going through a tragic moment in her life, and she's weeping. And all of a sudden, before Chad can say, he just says, hello, before he can say anything else, she says, Pastor, I got to tell you what's going on in my life. And she starts telling my son all these things that are going on in their life. And so Chad, after a while, tells her, it's not, you know, it's not my dad. Let me go get him. And he told us later on, I will never answer the phone in this house again in my entire life. I have heard stuff I should never hear. <laughs> my my mind immediately when i read this verse 
about John hearing the bridegroom's voice and rejoicing, I think that he, it's just about pitch and sound, but it's more than that. It's more than that because John knows, John knows because this takes place in his heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit within his life. He knows that it's the very voice that calls the dead from the grave. He knows it's the voice that speaks sight to the blind. He knows it's the very voice that can calm the sea. It's the same voice that spoke over the, the waters of the deep and there became dry land. It's the very same voice that cried, it is finished on Calvary. It's that very same voice, but even greater than that, even greater than all of those kinds of those things, it's the voice of the bride bridegroom that woos the bride to come to his side because this is not about tool this is not about rules in our life this is simply about tools in our life and that is God loves us and when we come to that understanding of how much he absolutely loves us and he's sovereign over our lives then with love we begin to surrender those spaces in our life to him that we should surrender it's the perfect view of grace in our lives the perfect view of grace it signifies when you hear his voice that the bridegroom is present that that he's here that his rightful place is is with with the bride it's a story of redemption it's that it's being played out before our very eyes that jesus is the bridegroom you and i we are the church we are the bride it's his heavenly plan working in our life he's revealing the heart of and love of his father toward you and i it's a solution of of human of the human dilemma and when you look at your life and live your life constantly day in and day out in the light of that then you will surrender the things in your life that you need to surrender to god out of a loving relationship because you trust him No wonder John can say that, that he must increase, but I must decrease. Those, those are massive words. Those seven words are absolutely huge, that statement. How do you make that and then say that from that you receive complete joy? How, how does that happen? It's because you understand who you are and you understand who he is. And in light of that, you completely trust Him in the light of His sovereignty and your inability. You trust Him. And in the beauty of that relationship, that love relationship like the bridegroom has with the bride, that you know what? It's okay that I'm a friend of the bride, of the bridegroom. It's okay. It's absolutely fine because I trust the bridegroom. I trust Him. It's not that I know my place. It's that I know His place. And so it makes my place okay. I think this is perhaps one of the most beautiful analogies of grace and the, and the love of God that He initiates toward you and I. When I, when I read this and I finished with this, that he must increase that acknowledgement of his greatness and supremacy, the way John the writer puts it, it precedes me decreasing. He doesn't say that 
that this is about me decreasing and he must increase, but that he must increase and I must decrease. And what I realize, it reminds me over and over again that it's always God that initiates his relationship with me. It's always him. It's always him in the light of his beauty, in the light of his grace, in the light of his love. And in the shadow of his great love, in the shadow of his great love that I decrease. And I don't do it begrudgingly because that's not the way that God has created the relationship. So, are you struggling with trust this morning in surrendering those spaces that you need to surrender to Him? We all do that. Look at verse 31, and I finish. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks to an earthly way, speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. That what John does, he takes us back to contrast, and we say oh, that he's contrasting Jesus and John, but I think more than that, he's contrasting what took place Last week in chapter 3, he's contrasting that of John the Baptist and Nicodemus. Because when, Nicod- when, John- when Jesus begins to talk to Nicodemus about his heart, Nicodemus's response is simply, how can these things be? He's flabbergasted and he's appalled that Jesus would have this conversation about being born again. But here's John's response to this relationship with Jesus. And John's response is this, that he must increase, but I must decrease. There's two different worlds. So in the shadow of all of this this morning, how could I not love him more than everything? How could I not love him more than everything? So for a moment before we go to the Lord's table, would you bow your heads, please? as we take a moment to meditate and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table that I would challenge you today to think about the things that we have discussed for a moment for these steps of understanding your limitations for you acknowledging God's unlimited greatness in your life And it's not that you have a complete understanding of God's unlimited greatness because that's far beyond our mind to comprehend. So this is a true supernatural work of the Holy Spirit within our lives today. So it takes place in our hearts. Our step is trust. And the very ability to trust God is given by grace. So I trust him. And as I trust him, I surrender those spaces in my life that need to be surrendered to his supremacy, not out of begrudging duty, but out of a loving relationship with him. that I realize that 
in understanding who he is in my life and understanding who I am and understanding that I am covered by his grace today. That not only can I say that I, that he must increase and I must decrease, but yet I can live that out in my life every day for the glory of God. And I find complete joy in that. So, Father, arrest our hearts and our minds this morning. Open our hearts to your your word. Open our hearts to your wooing as being the bridegroom and we being the bride, the church. That we would be overcome by your love for us this morning. And in being overcome by your love and overshadowed by that, that we would trust you with those spaces in our life today that we need to lay at your feet. We need to surrender to you. Not because it's some duty that we have, but because it's a part of our love relationship with you. And we trust you this morning. We trust you this morning. So, Father, draw us to you. May we sense your love in our life like never before. May we surrender those spaces that should be surrendered to you today. And we begin that journey. So, Father, today as we come to your table, we pray a blessing over the elements of the juice that represents your blood. For without the shedding of your blood, there's no remission of our sin. Lord, for the bread that represents your body, which is broken for us. And we do both of these, Lord, in remembrance of you. And we continue to do these things as you have admonished us until you come. So today we celebrate your blood and your body. Because, Father, truly, it is the gift that you have given us through your Son, the Bridegroom that enables us to stand next to him as the bride. You purify us, not our human efforts. And so in this time at your table, we celebrate that today and we remember. In your name we pray.